Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, aspirationally, boys and girls. Uh, welcome to the Personal Wealth Coach. I am Jake McClure, and on the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. Uh, he is affectionately known as Elder Baldy, while I am maybe not as affectionately known as Younger Baldy. Uh, well... And more like senior Baldy and and Baldy. That's not very the, affectionate. You can be the primary Baldy, and I can be the senior Baldy. Yes, or or we, I think we should develop Calvin and Hobbes style uh, titles for our baldness. Yes. Bald Emperor of the Universe. No. No. I don't think they will do. Well, I mean, it's very Calvin and Hobbes. It's just, that's not Calvin and Hobbes don't want to be considered to be the emperor of the universe. It's a little more responsibility than I want today. No, not, not if I am a lazy emperor of the universe. Oh, okay. Uh, I ordered the sun to rise today. This, this cloud's gotten in the way, but I'm pretty sure it did it. So I must be all powerful. Hmm. You could be a priest. This is the whole, uh, in statistics, this is cause, this is called, Causation is not necessarily correlation. Or vice versa. Or vice versa. Yes. Well, we probably ought to get on with our disclosures and, and let everybody see us completely transparently. Um, they can't see us on the radio, but we will be completely transparent literally on the radio. You can see right through what we're saying. We're going to be the most transparent radio program you have ever seen. First thing we have to say is the personal wealth coach is not only the name of this radio program, it's the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm in Slato, Texas, not to imply in any way that the SEC approves or disapproves of us. That's just who we're registered with and our regulators. Right. The, uh, uh, we, we do not pay the radio program, the radio station, uh, town square media for this radio program, and they don't pay us. We do, however, buy advertising, on Town Square Media, um, we advertise the radio program. That, That's weird. That is weird. Uh, one of these days, we'll figure that out. Um, and, you want to do the deem? And the information, this is not a, uh, even though we're an investment advisor with principles of an investment advisory firm that happens to have the same name, this is not investment advice that we provide on the radio, rather that it's educational information. And the information we provide educationally is from sources we deem to be reliable. However, we make no warranty or guarantee of its completeness or accuracy. How do you like that? So it could be incomplete, inaccurate, and we wouldn't warranty or guarantee it anyway. But got it. we don't think it is. How's we do that? Our we do our best to give you complete and accurate factual information, but you never can tell. Yeah. So it, any place that doesn't have that disclosure on the front end probably shouldn't be talking, including, <laughs> including media, including scientific papers, including the Labor Department, including everyone. <laughs> we think this is right, but, you know, take it with a grain of salt. And past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Uh, the future is always uncertain. Close cover before striking. Authorized personnel only beyond this point. Let's see. Uh, contents may be hot and under pressure. When I was in college, I was uh, one of my uh, student duties for which I got paid in my worker in my my I don't remember what it was called. Basically, it's a scholarship where you work. 
uh, I was to make the signs for the for the university. The signs that go up on the doors and the professor's doors and so on. And I had a machine that I made the signs with. And just before I left there, the day before I left, I changed all the authorized personnel only to unauthorized personnel only and created a great deal of mental blockage and mental breakdowns among the professors. That was a very childish thing to do. What were you thinking? And hilarious. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> a lot of people who came to doors and couldn't enter because they were authorized, therefore they can't enter the door. Can't go in there. Only. Especially the entire department of pedantics. You see what I'm I not, did there? I heard that was that was pretty good. Yeah. Well, with, we can talk about the market now that we've taken our clothes off. Yes, we have thoroughly disclosed... And uh, now we will move into talking about the, the market. You're welcome to send us an email, and we will discuss it on the air. We'll answer it on the air. Unfortunately, we don't have telephone lines available that you can call in on, but you can send us an email at either jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. You notice how I pronounce that very carefully. Yes, very. It's Tango Papa Whiskey Charlie, the personal wealth coach. And you can Actually, write out thepersonalwealthcoach.com if you want to. We, we, uh, we ha- are fully intending to get phone lines up and running in the near future, but we're not there yet. Um, the studio, uh, we're, we're doing this completely remotely, just as a side note. Uh, our, if our voices get weird, if there's distortion or anything, please give us an email. But we're doing this remotely. And having the ability to have call-ins means that we would have to have more than one phone line at the studio, which is what we're calling in through. So we're going to have to set up phone lines external through our own studio. That's not a big deal. It's just that we've had staff members have babies and stuff like that. Or It's Christmas time. So we'll get to it. Uh, in the meantime, please use our email addresses, jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. And shall we dive into the market? We can. The S&P 500 stock index, uh, affectionately known as SPX, weaved about of it this week, but it actually was pretty smooth compared with some of the weeks we've seen. It finished the week at 3709.41, up 1.25%, which doesn't sound like much, but if you take that over 52 weeks, that's a lot. That's a huge rise. Uh, the, the rise was widely credited to sustained hope, and I, this has been over and over again. We could just record from last week, just playback last week. Sustained hope that Congress would finally reach agreement on a bill to provide further relief to the economy in the face of record COVID-19 infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. And by the way, in case you haven't been following it, we literally have more people dying every day now than we did in in the early February March time frame when the COVID vaccine not COVID vaccine the COVID virus was killing people and they were putting them in refrigerated trucks. They're they're doing that again in various places across the country. I've heard reports that they're doing it in California right now. Well, they so, definitely are preparing in California for it if they haven't already. They're doing it in El Paso right now as well. So we've got this thing, and by the way, Bell County, for those of you who are listening locally, is in condition red, which basically says, that's officially from Bell County Health District, that the virus contagion is out of control in Bell County. So you want to be particularly careful. You want to wear your mask, covering your nose, I might add, and you want to uh, distance yourself from people, and very frankly, 
you i would not i haven't gone to restaurants and would recommend against it there's a very strong correlation between going to a restaurant eating of course where people are unmasked and have their mouths open and talking and uh coming down with covid19 and we've known people who've been very sick a couple of friends of mine have now died from covid19 this is a very real thing yeah uh gotta take it seriously and why are we bringing this up on an economics radio program because it is the biggest part of the economy right now. It, and it's, it is having a distinct effect. Uh, the labor market, probably we will see a negative job growth. It's a weird term. We'll lose jobs in December, it looks like right now, because the, uh, the uh, new claims for unemployment insurance jumped to nearly 900,000 last week. Can, can, anyway, I, can I throw a piece in here just real quick on that subject? Uh, we, we're economists, why are we bringing up death rates and that sort of thing with the virus? We're not doctors. Um, we can't give you a, a medical opinion about coronavirus. We really don't have the expertise. From the economic point of view, when we make decisions about how to manage portfolios or try to gauge the future based on what's happening in the present, this is kind of a, an important piece. It doesn't matter if the coronavirus is real or not. How's that for weird? It doesn't matter. If enough people believe it's weird or believe it's real, they're going to change their behavior in the economy. The fact that we have a lot of deaths, that's measurable. And to some extent, we can point at this and say, these are real. We know people that died from this. Uh, if we know people that died from this, then the statistics are not extremely wrong. What I will tell you is that the statistics are wrong. That's not a controversial statement, just as a side note. We're measuring this on the fly. Uh, we, the United States, the world, is measuring it on the fly. And the sources of information are changing constantly. We're changing how we measure constantly. When you look at a graph of COVID-19 deaths or infections and you see these weird spikes in it that really didn't happen on that day, but they're counting all the, all the infections or deaths that they had for three months that they said, oh, sorry, we missed these. We're going to throw them in. It looks like we have this massive jump. That is not good statistics. Yes, uh, and I use that the, the appropriate plural there with a singular is. How's that? I conjugated the verb to be correctly is not good statistics because statistics being the subject. There, there's my literature uh, diatribe for a moment. Uh, the statistics are wrong, but they're not greatly wrong. The statistics at the Labor Department are always wrong, but not greatly so. This is kind of the world that we live in as economists is that you can never look at a number from any massive group of people, at least not until we have AI or something helping us do it, and say that number is exactly correct. This is why when we do recounts, whether it's George W. Bush or during the, the Biden and Trump election, the numbers aren't exactly the same when you count them two times as they, when you counted them the first time. Uh, it's because people make mistakes. How? Oh, whoa, I know, that's crazy. And we kind of try to average those mistakes out in the economic data. When it comes to COVID, we're trying to average that out too. 
there's a lot of controversy over how many cases of COVID there really are. We know that, for example, there have been 17,390,245 officially diagnosed cases of COVID in the United States, wait, according wait. to John Hopkins. So John Hopkins says that the Washington Post says 17,455,000, rounded to the nearest thousand. Yeah, well, this is, uh, my information is running about two days behind. I take it the same time each week. Okay. So what it, what we're saying is that if you get the information from two different sources, you're going to get slightly different answers. But what we know also, Johns Hopkins does a pretty good job of tracking how many people have died. Now, there's a lag in it because yeah. people die, then they, because you have to officially be determined to be dead from COVID in the, the before Johns, Johns Hopkins will record it. But 312,845 have now died, according to Johns Hopkins. Just like we know that the Bell County Health Department Health District has determined that 144 people have died in Bell County from it. Now, to give you some perspective on that and why it's affecting the economy so strongly, the most we've had die in one year, one calendar year from influenza is 60,000. Now, we did have an epidemic of influenza that hit us, that killed ultimately 100,000, but it killed it over a two-year period, killed them over a two-year period. So when you have 312,000 die in nine months, or 314 or whatever number you are looking at right now. That affects behavior. That affects a lot of things. Now, many of them had comorbidities. Many of them were older people in nursing homes, but a significant number, last I've heard is between 20 and 25%, are younger people. Which That's... A lot of people dying. Which means we've had more people die that are younger without comorbidity, without other causes, than we generally do for all people dying of the flu in a given year. That's a big deal. this, This is a reality that we have to face. And we also know that in places where there's been good social distancing and wearing of masks, the death rate, the infection rate, and the hospitalization rate is much lower. So that's why we suggest that people do their part, wear their masks, because, and and social distance, because when you do that, you slow the rate of death, and vaccines are here. It's just a matter of time. And people who die now or die over the next six months before the vaccines are widely used are people who probably didn't have to die. They were they were infected by somebody. And this is one of the big issues. I know we sound like we're going on about health too much, but it affects the economy dramatically. Dr. Elizabeth, I think it's Elizabeth Burks, the White House advisor on coronavirus. I just watched a uh, video from her. Deborah. Deborah Burks, okay. The key thing she said is many of the people who have COVID are asymptomatic. In other words, you could have COVID and not know it. The person you're talking to could have COVID and not know it and be spreading the virus around for up to 14 days. We've shown, it's been shown again and again and again that the wearing of masks dramatically reduces the spread of the virus and reduces the distance at which it's spread. So let's do what we can to keep this thing from uh, running away. It's growing pretty fast it's growing the the daily growth rate according to the official numbers in bell county is 1.7 percent per day right now which doesn't sound like a lot until you realize that um since october we've had 44 40 you know we've had 48 people die 
in Bell County from COVID-19. So take this seriously. And the problem is, of course, that the disease infection rate, the hospitalization rate, and the death rate is not just rising, it's accelerating. I graph it once a week. And it's a little scary to see the way that graph keeps getting steeper and steeper. It's it's an important thing that we do what we can to slow it down. Meanwhile, right. let's get, it's, I'm sorry. For yeah, Let, let's hit the market now. When we say that the market has been excited and hoping with waiting with bated breath for the stimulus package to come out from Congress, this is why. Because we have... We have a sick country. The economy is sick, whether either with the virus or the fear of the virus. And you can tell people, don't be scared. That doesn't work very well. If, you, if you've ever had a kid, um, you, you know that doesn't work. Uh, I'm just going to leave the closet door open. Don't be scared, okay? I'll, I'll be back. Or maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, the market has uh, switched over this week being led again by the top 10 or so very large cap growth stocks that are mostly priced for perfection to infinity which is a little scary to us the value the the opposite side of the s p 500 because the s p 500 does not contain any small cap stocks the since large cap growth is at one end of the s p 500 we have mid cap value at the other end to show what's going on at the lower part of the market and that that only rose 0.35%, the mid-cap value index for the week. The yield on the U.S. Treasury, now there's something that's very positive. It rose 6.088% to 0.947%. Now, that sounds like a bunch of esoteric silliness, but 0.947 is near 1%. A few a couple of months ago, three months ago, the, S, the yield on the 10-year Treasury, 10-year note was at 0.5%, half a percent. It's up to nearly 1%, and it's trying for that 1% yield mark. Every time it gets up near 1%, there's a sell-off or a buy-off or something, and it falls back down. So the 90-day T-bill, the other loan benchmark, and this is important to recognize, yields 0.085%, which is a bunch of numbers, that means it yields less than a tenth of a percent. That means that effectively zero. And inflation is running about 1.4, so you get a negative return on savings at this point. And here's the important thing to recognize about the negative return on savings. There's going to be a real tendency to hunt for something that has a higher yield. But once you get up around 1% or higher, you are taking some risk. For instance, the 10-year Treasury note, if you decided to buy a 10-year treasury note rather than put your money in a CD thinking that a treasury note is completely secure, and it is if you hold it for 10 years. The problem is that if you buy a 10-year treasury note today, and let's say you had bought it Friday at 0.97%, you're really happy about it. If interest rates go to 2%, which is not a lot, and we expect to see interest rates go to 2% on the treasury, the 10-year treasury, it, depending on what the market does about that, your value in your treasury note, since you've got almost a full 10 years left on it, could easily drop. Let's say you put $10,000 in a treasury note. You could easily, if you didn't needed to sell it and you needed your money back, you could easily see yourself get back fifty to $60,000 rather than your, not fifty, sixty, yeah, five to $6,000 rather than your $10,000. In other words, you could see easily a 40% drop in the note if interest rates doubled, and it's very easy, very, very easy over the next couple of years to see interest rates double. So don't chase interest rates. 
remember, this is a very important thing to remember. The purpose in savings is to avoid loss. The purpose in investment is to be long-term and to achieve gain. But to achieve gain, you have to hit up with the fact that you'll have an occasional short-term loss. So it's very important that you don't chase interest rates right now. Yeah, and that, that should be, you could take that and replace interest rates and yield with with higher risk stocks for a higher, you know, trying to get a good return and jumping into riskier and riskier stuff. You're, you're talking about the same thing. If you're chasing the absolute highest return, you're probably going to get burned in this. And that's, you, know, you want to keep going with the market? Cause we got questions. We've got now yeah. four or five questions waiting in the wings. Okay. The other, the other market that we particularly we ch- continually track or track at least once a week is oil, West Texas Intermediate. And remember that it was down to 34, negative $34 at one point in this, uh, in this crisis. And, in, and it was sagging below $40, which is the average at which many of the drillers have to have $40 to break even. Um, it's up to $49 per barrel, which is great until you, and, and depending on your political view, you realize why it's up to $49 a barrel. Not because we're burning that much more oil in the United States, because we're not. Not because they're burning a lot more oil in Europe. It's because the Chinese economy is going stronger and stronger with each, with each passing month, and they need a lot of oil, and they're basically buying oil from the United States. We're the closest legal supplier of oil for them. And so the price of West Texas Intermediate Oil has risen to $49, which is a good thing for the oil business. Yeah. Uh, indicates that China is doing relatively well economically. We could go into great detail on that if you'd like sometime. Yeah. Um, there, there's, uh, from from the Chinese front, that's, they kind of have to, to keep up with their dem- demographic issues. They've got a shrinking and oldering, aging population. I like oldering. That's a new word. I, I like it too. I, I've been but, using it this week and I, I think I'm going to stick to it. It's like strategy. It just sounds right. It's right. good. It, it's, it needs to be in the lexicon. I don't know why it got left out. Um, I'm oldering, are you? I am, steadily. Every really. moment. Uh, all right, what else do you have on the, the market? That's pretty much it for the market. That's a wrap. Okay, well, our first question from John today, and by the way, we've got, Philip, I hope you're okay because you sent a question, you're listening from the ER. I hope you are uh, just in there because uh, it's your job or because you're enjoying yourself in there for for hangout purposes. But if not, I hope you do all right. Uh, he said he's tuning in from the from the ER, so I'm hoping he works there. Um, John, he has a good question. And he's referring to a Wall Street Journal article that was printed on Wednesday. Um, And it kind of dovetails into what I wanted to talk about anyway. Uh, One of the things I wanted to talk about. John's really good at that. Uh, So I'm going to start with the subject that I was going to be talking about that this dovetails into. His question I'll read in advance, though. Uh, He's referencing high-speed trading and fiber optics and a new type of hollow core fiber that uh, allows extremely fast trading on the market. And his question is, who would pay hundreds of millions of dollars for a millisecond of trading speed and why? What is the invisible tax to investors mentioned in the Wall Street Journal article? Okay, 
So we'll hold that question and I will answer it as I go along because I think this is a really big thing. We've talked for decades on this program about uh, the need for infrastructure investment. Do you recall any of that conversation? I do. Uh, that we have been falling back hard on money we spent in the 1960s. Now, the 1960s may seem like it wasn't that long ago. If it does seem like it wasn't that long ago to you... The other day. It was just the other day. Well, then you're probably old. That's what I was going to say. I probably am. Speaking of oldering, it's been a long time, and bridges were not designed to last 50 years, much less 70 years. And we're coming up on the 70-year mark on some of these bridges that need work. The other thing that's hurting us economically is the fact that we don't have a good spread of the Internet. We don't have fiber optics to a lot of places. Right. It's only gone to the places where it's economically very profitable to go. And we had the same problem, by the way, in the 1930s. With electricity. With electricity and with telephones. And the government stepped in and passed some big bills to communicate, telecommunications bill and a big rural electric power bill to get electricity and telephone service out to the countryside. And it helped us tremendously economically and getting a good Internet service, good high speed Internet service into the rural areas would help us tremendously. So you just, this is where the dovetail is. There are massive amounts of investment going on in that subject right now. It's not coming from the government. Washington is sitting this out right now. Uh, the, the, this year, let me see what the Wall Street Journal is saying. Well, Joe Biden says he wants to spend two, $2 trillion on it. That's, that's election speak which means that whatever Congress comes up with is what's going to happen there. From the private side, about, well, just one company at a time, you're talking about 50-plus billion. So we're talking about somewhere in the vicinity of half a trillion dollars from the private investment side is going into infrastructure. That's new fiber optics, new um, internet connections. Uh, that includes the Starlink satellite system that that uh, SpaceX is putting up. That's a massive amount of money that's being spent there. Well, why? Well, because it'll be available everywhere. And that creates an intensely large amount of economic activity. Uh, most of the most of the Christmas shopping this year is not taking place at stores. That shouldn't be earth-shaking news to anyone. It's taking place online. It is. Uh, this is a year that I think will be the first year that more online shopping for Christmas occurs than in-store shopping. And once that occurs, the trends are set. We may get a slight increase when people are back out and not afraid that their neighbor hacking on them will, will cause them to get sick and die. But the reality is our habits are changing on how we buy. People are getting good at buying online. That was one of the friction points people wanted to go out and pick up the clothes and look at them or smell the candle well we can't do that now that means your habits start changing we've had nine months of habit change so infrastructure spending 
is huge, it's going to encourage this trend. What does this have to do with high-speed trading and an invisible tax? That front-end cost is expensive. The long-term profit is great. And I was thinking about going down the line of, you know, like when the military commissions a new uh, piece of equipment, whether it's like the Navy and a destroyer or the Air Force with the stealth bomber, the first few of them are going to be so far off the budget as far as what they expected it to be as to be disgusting. And the news will come up and say, hey, this, this airplane is supposed to cost $20 trillion and instead it's costing 50 gajillion boogle dollars. What's going on? And I'm making up numbers on purpose here because they're not real easy to understand numbers anyway. You're trying to say that Kajillion Boogle is not a real number? I, if it is, then I got really lucky. I got Kajillion Boogle luckily, lucky on my uh, statistical quest for a new name. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea here is that the, the front-end cost in getting the infrastructure, see that word there, in place to do the building of the destroyer or the airplane costs a lot more than the airplane. But if you're paying for that cost with the sale of the airplane, that airplane's going to be really, really expensive. Okay, so jumping to this question, and it's a fantastic question, who would pay hundreds of millions of dollars for a millisecond of trading speed and why? Okay, let's take a second, and there's a, this kind of fits into the, the second part of the question, what's the invisible tax? If you go to buy a stock, even using something like Robinhood, if you haven't paid them for the high-speeding trade, high-speed trading side of Robinhood, which is really expensive, then you make your trade. You say, "I wish to buy uh, at the market now, uh, and the price looks pretty reasonable. It's kind of moving up and down a little bit, but I'm going to buy it today at that price. That's cool. I'm clicking the button, bought it." While you're doing that, a high-speed trader, and I'm going to use some really, really simple numbers here. Say they have. Uh, one stock that they're trading, one share of one stock, which is not what happens in high-speed trading. We get to magnify that later. And they get in and they make one penny profit by buying in one millisecond and then selling it in the next millisecond to you. That means that they can make 500 of those pennies in one second on one share. That's $5 a second. Let's take that out to 60 seconds. That's $300 in a minute. You can see this is going to start getting really big. 300 times 60 again. And you're talking about 1,000, well, 18,000. Let's see. What is that? I, I lost my place. $800 an hour. Uh, right. On one share. Now multiply that by 100 for a normal lot of trading stock. Multiply that by, say you have thousands of shares of a company that you wish to be buying and selling. You can see where the hundreds of millions of dollars get made up at a really fast speed if you can be the one getting in the middle of that to get, I bought it here and I'm going to sell it there. That's called arbitrage. When you can find a better price for something, and sell it to someone that wanted it at a higher price. 
If they can do that at this speed, it makes a tremendous amount of money, and it costs the overall marketplace some, too. And you remember, this is not being done by a person who's putting, pushing a button. This is done no. by a computer sees a dip in the market, and they see that this, this stock has gone down to this price. Same thing you saw. You say, oh, this is a great time to buy. I'm going to buy that share of stock. And the computer, though, is faster than you are. But compounding that faster than you are is it takes maybe a couple of seconds from the time you enter your buy order until it actually hits the market. And that's being that's presuming that everything goes very, very quickly if you're not paying for high-speed trading. Right. So they're able to get in and buy it a couple of seconds before you do when the stock was at its absolute lowest. The stock has actually risen several points by the time you get to it because they bought it first and they can sell it back to you at a higher price. So that's an invisible tax in that there's a slightly higher price. And by slightly, I mean it could be a penny higher on your stock. But when you multiply that penny, this is very much like, what was it, Superman 3, Richard Pryor, when he's getting all the fractional pennies together and becomes this massively rich person. Or Office Space, where they basically do the same thing in the banking software. Uh, when, if you can make a spare penny... Uh, a, a few hundred times a second, it starts adding up pretty quick. So why would somebody invest in this? Why would somebody invest in the computer programs to do this? And how many people are doing it? Well, a lot of companies are doing it. And we've talked about this in the past. This is part of how flash crashes occur. When all the different computers out there all have slightly different algorithms, but they all hit at the same moment and decide to sell, you can have a tremendous drop in the market in a very short period of time. I think that's more concerning than the, the penny tax that's being on there, although that is a friction on the economy. It's not great. It's not a huge friction. Well, there's a plus to it, too, and the plus is it provides instant liquidity. The fact that there are so many people buying and selling stocks so frequently, right? you go to buy a stock or you go to sell a stock, it's there to buy or sell because there's a lot of people, high-speed traders, are perfectly willing to sell it to you or buy it from you when you get ready to sell it. And that's, what that, that's what that invisible tax is paying for. That's the wonder of our market is that you instantly have the ability to sell it. Now, that's not true in bonds. It's important to recognize that you could have a bond issue. Uh, let, let's say, for example, you with the Central Texas College, the old Central Texas College bonds, and you said, I want to sell it. Well, if there's nobody lined up to buy it, you might not be able to sell it. You might have to wait several days. And matter of fact, I've heard of situations and actually seen a couple of situations where people had to wait over a month to sell their bond because there was nobody interested in buying it at that point. So you can't get your look. There's no, let's say you have $10,000 worth of bonds and you want to sell them because you need the $10,000. If it's a thinly traded bond, there is no New York, there is no New York stock or New York bond exchange for bonds. You just have to, the, the market maker for that particular bond has to find somebody who's interested in buying your bond at that particular price. And the other thing is, of course, you might have to lower the price quite a bit before you can sell it. Right. All right, so the next question that John had, I think we answered that. You think it's pretty good? Okay. Um, he said, what percentage of the stock purchases are done on margin? Well, what are the advantages and risks? Well, first off, let's talk about what is margin. Uh, margin has... I know what margin Yeah, go ahead. 
Margins is the stuff on the side of the paper where there's no print. Oh yeah, I was thinking it was that stuff that's supposed to taste like butter, but that's margarine. That's that's oh, a different that's thing. Um, yeah. So margin, what is it? Margin in finance actually has multiple meanings. Um, when you're talking about profitability, your margin is the the excess in earnings that you're retaining after all the expenses. So if you have a good margin on your on your profits, uh, you have uh, a lot of profits. That's really good. Uh, when you're talking about margin in the stock market, even though you may read about a company's margin and decide to buy that company with margin, it's a different meaning. Margin means that you have borrowed money to make a purchase of the stock. And there are some tremendous risks there. You can lose more than you invested. If you borrow $5,000 and you invest it in, in a stock and that stock goes bust, you lost $5,000, but you still owe $5,000. You could lose more than you invest. Now, if you did exactly what I described, you would be in violation of regulations and law. You're only supposed to be allowed to borrow 50% of the asset value. Uh, that's the maximum. Um, so, so just hold that in mind. What percentage of stock purchases are on that? And this is kind of flows with that invisible tax and that concept. This creates liquidity in the market. It's also extremely expensive um, to the people that are doing it long term. So I, I went to the, the FINRA website. Uh, and FINRA is the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. Uh, the stock exchanges and uh, the broker-dealers of the United States combined under FINRA a few years back, and there's been a kind of a slow consolidation to that. It's a self-regulatory organization, but basically if you're buying and selling a stock in the United States, you're using a FINRA firm to do it. They're regulated by FINRA. There are some very, very small exceptions to that. The vast majority is FINRA. Um, and they said they've got data going through the end of October. $659 million, oh, I'm sorry, $659 billion worth of stocks are held in margin. So that's slightly more than half a trillion dollars. How big is the stock market? Well, that's hard to measure, but the close measurement would be somewhere in the vicinity of $36 trillion. So uh, it's more than 1% of stocks are bought and held on margin. But on a day-to-day -day it's probably, and this, this, these, are, these are educated guesses because this is not a statistics that's held. A lot more trading occurs in a margin account than in other accounts. So in a given day, margin trading might be somewhere in the 5% of trades or it might be in the 1% of trades. So there's a range there. The origin of the word, the etymology, etymological, that's the word I'm looking for. Origin 
of the word margin is sort of interesting. When manuscripts were written, they were very good. Paper was very, very well, actually it was parchment. It was very, very expensive. And if you wanted to make notes, explanatory notes about what was going on in the document, you wrote them in the margin. And the larger, the, mar the more margin you had, the more you could write in there and the more valuable the, the document was. Um, so if you have a lot of margin, then you can write a lot of stuff in the margin. And it's a marginal notation at that point. And the same thing is true. It's In other words, it's outside of the mainstream and their main text, which margin investing is. Yeah. The problem with a lot of margin, even though it's a small percentage of the total market, is that in the in a drop in the market or any movement of the market, it's only a very small percentage of the stocks that are being bought or sold. So if you get if the market suddenly drops and there's a lot of margin out there, a lot of margin accounts out there, people have borrowed a lot of money, they can all of a sudden start to get margin calls. When they start to get margin calls, it forces in many cases a sale of the stock, which exacerbates the collapse of the market or if the market is going down in a hurry. Yeah. Margin investing is dangerous, folks. Very. Borrowing money best is generally a bad idea yeah and when we look at this is a, a really the, going back to that statistic what i was saying before about you're only allowed to borrow 50 percent. that's the maximum amount you're allowed to borrow 50 percent of the value of the thing you're buying in the stock market the reason is after the 1929 crash people said oh you're not allowed to borrow everything twice to buy stuff because people were getting loans on loans to buy stocks and they wound up losing four or five times the value of the stock. It was really bad. So Congress said, Hey, that's, let's, let's limit that. If you're in this market, you're dealing with somebody's business. Somebody's real. they built a business. We're almost out of time for the, we got to play some commercials too. Um, yeah. But the debit balances in the margin account were slightly higher than the margin owned thing. That means we dipped, we were, we owed more than 50% in October. That's very unusual. It means that we are, the margin trading is acting funny and the things that are in margin are not performing well. So, and they often don't. Right. Uh, oftentimes people have things on margin like, petroleum stocks because oh they'll come back i'm gonna borrow some money and buy that except that sometimes it takes them a decade to come back or they may never come back if a new technology comes along but we have some commercials to play we've only hit three of the many questions that we have out there um so we'll get to them i promise and we're back with more of the personal wealth coach this is jake and on the line with me i have Jeff. We're both McClure's. We're both bald. We both, both have beards. Oh. Can you tell us apart? I can tell us apart. See, oh, I am me. No, I'm me. Oh, man. Now we're confused. If you look and you see that the person you're talking to is bald and has a white beard, it is me, not you. I, I, I don't have a white beard, and that would be me. Well, if you look in the mirror... Well, it's Jeff then that you're looking at. If you look in the mirror and you see somebody with a white beard, you're not looking in the mirror. Oh, okay. Oh, that's this a computer screen I'm looking at. Yeah. Ah. Have right. you ever noticed, by the way, that when you look in a computer screen or you look at a picture of yourself or when you look in your phone at a picture of yourself, it's reversed like it's a mirror? Yeah. 
It's not the actual picture of you. It reverses it so that you don't get confused. You can go into your settings and change that. And some people do if they're like programmers, that sort of thing. And they're like, I don't want to look in the mirror. I'm trying to look at what the computer's seeing. Um, but most people are more comfortable with that because we learn at a pretty young age how to reverse everything in the mirror. We have to relearn how to do it if it's not reversed. It would be easier to learn not reversed, but since we learned it reversed, it's hard to do the unreversed. Yeah. Eventually, I think mirrors will go away and it'll just be flat screens. Hey, John had another question about fractional shares. Good stuff. He wanted to know, with more and more people buying and selling fractional shares, will this cause more volatility in the market? No, actually, it causes less volatility in the market. Mm-hmm. Is when, when the cost of a share jumped up around $100 a share, it used to be that companies would do a share split, and they would buy everybody's shares, basically convert, if you had a single share worth $100, the company would issue two shares and take back your one share, and it'd be very expensive to do. The two shares would be $50 each. And when that happened, the price of the stock almost inevitably would jump. And it would jump because people thought, oh, that stock's dropped to 50. I want to buy it. It doesn't make any sense. It's part of what caused manias in the stock market in the past. They don't do that very much anymore. As a matter of fact, I've not heard much of anything about share splits. Apple did. Yeah, there have been some big ones. Tesla did just uh, October. Two really, really, really big ones, like some of the biggest companies in the world just split. But they do that when it's really huge, when the price of the share gets really, really huge and awkward. Yeah. But they they don't do it at $100 a share anymore like Dell used to do. It's more like thousands of dollars a share. So buying fractional shares enables people without a lot of money to buy the shares in the company, but it doesn't require the company to do an expensive and volatility-generating stock split. Yeah. Um, And I think... Long term, there's no reason why we shouldn't do fractional shares anymore. Let me tell you, why did we do fra- why did we why did it cost money to do fractional shares in the past, or people just didn't weren't able to do it, or why is it that it actually costs money to buy less than 100 shares at a time? That's called a lot, a normal lot purchase, and if you got less than that, it was called an odd lot purchase. The reason is because it used to be paper. <laughs> How do you take a piece of paper and split it into eight pieces and give a piece to all the fractional owners? How do you keep track of that with a pen and paper if you're the transfer agent for the company? They have to keep track of who the owners are. There's a technical invention that does that. Uh, The abacus? Scissors. Scissors. You're right. We could use like a a compass needle and, and perforate things so you could tear them off no that's literally why people didn't do fractional share purchases in the past because the shares were on paper and once they became electronic we kept that kind of concept of it's hard to split a stock into multiple pieces because it's got to be recorded on a ledger book of this share belongs to this person we don't have to do it that way anymore. It's like not using pennies. It'd be nice to not use pennies if they're if you're carrying around a bunch of copper. But uh, if if it's just electronic, then use the pennies. Use fractional pennies. That's great. And for whatever it's worth, there's a lot of mutual fund shares traded every day, uh, being sold at the end of the day and then bought 
and they're almost always in fractional shares. Right. And it's e- it was easier for them because they never actually issued paper shares. They were always in, in these open-ended mutual funds. We talked about this last week. Always in what's called the initial public offering, which means that they were still issuing shares. It didn't matter if they issued a fractional share. Because I'm really, really old, I remember when you could actually get paper shares of a mutual fund. Yeah, I remember that too. The first mutual fund I bought, I got paper shares. I wish I still had them. But they, the, the company that issued them is not around anymore. Oh, that's right. Well, it's probably folded into some other company. Yeah, it's been purchased and repurchased and repurchased. Yeah. So that so, I, think, I think we got that. It should cause less volatility because it's not going to cause a bunch of people to do irrational decisions like the value of the company is exactly the same but the share price looks better, so they'll buy it when they wouldn't have bought it before. The way uh, fractional shares will work in the future, and, and Robinhood is pushing this. Robinhood is, a, is a, a trading app for phones. They've got their own problems. Don't get me wrong. They just paid $65 million as a, uh, as a fine to FINRA, the company that I was just talking about, the self-regulatory organization that I was talking about, for defrauding customers. Intentionally or not, they didn't really say, but when you have to pay $65 million for defrauding a customer or customers, it doesn't generally say that you've got your practices in order. Um, But Robinhood is pushing this fractional share and the way it's going to look in the future, why should we not have fractional shares? It doesn't make a great deal of sense anymore. We're not using paper. This is a vestige of an earlier time and we're about out of time for this hour. We'll be back next hour with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. If you would like to talk to us off the air, we have voicemail waiting during the weekend and real live people during the week locally at 254-947-1111. Or you can reach that same line toll free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You could go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. Uh, we've got newsletters and podcasts. We've got uh, you can sign up for both of those there. Uh, you can contact us through the contact form or email us at Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. Thank you for listening. Merry Christmas, and we'll be back next hour with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. <laughs>